if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 42, Apologetics Month, The Argument from Desire, After Hours with Joseph Heschmeyer. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we read The Four Loves, and we're now in the middle of Apologetics Month, talking about Lewis's favorite apologetic arguments to defend the existence of God and the Lordship of Christ. And today, we're talking with Joseph Heschmeyer. Joe Heschmeyer is a blogger at shamelesspopery.com, and I first met Joe in person in 2011, while he was still a practicing attorney in Washington, D.C., after reading his blog for several years. And following that, he spent some time as a seminarian in Rome, and later worked as an instructor at Holy Family School of Faith in Kansas City. But he is now an author and a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. Joe Heschmeyer, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> it's, this is really nice. We're actually recording this well in advance of Apologetics Month. My wife and I are in San Diego for a wedding, and so we had dinner with Joe, his wife, and children, and uh, he said, well, while you're in town, let's, let's knock it out. Exactly. It's a good timing. We were both visiting San Diego at the same time. <laughs> the stars aligned. And today I am drinking uh, Coca-Cola because I have just had Mexican food for lunch, and this is the best thing to chase it. How about yourself? I'm just drinking a Diet Coke. I'm not proud of it, but it <laughs> gets, gets you through the day. <laughs> exactly. Well, cheers. <laughs> cheers. So I gave a little bit of an introduction to you and how we know each other. Would you mind filling out your background a little bit? Uh, yeah. I mean, as you kind of alluded, I was an attorney and then I was a seminarian. Uh, I did two years studying philosophy in St. Louis. And then uh, three years, I got a degree in theology uh, from the Angelicum in Rome. And uh, after it became clear I wasn't called to the priesthood, I, and I, I had a real passion for apologetics, going back really to my time in law school. Uh, I, I started to learn a lot about the faith and just felt this need to share it and was really annoying to those around me. So I thought <laughs> I'd better uh, direct that into a blog rather than just alienating real life people. Um, so it, it ended up just becoming this kind of consuming passion to you know, spend a lot of my free time researching, writing about, defending the faith. Um, and, and so when the opportunity arose, first at School of Faith and, and now, of course, Catholic Answers, to get to do that full time. That was as close to a no brainer. I mean, just imagine, you know, someone says, hey, you know that hobby you like to do? <laughs> uh, would you like to get paid to do that and just do it full time where you don't have another job taking your attention away from it? It's, it's been incredible. It's been a, a, an amazing journey. I'd wanted to get you here at Catholic Answers pretty much ever since I moved here. Uh, and uh, I'm really sad that I managed to get it to happen, but only after I left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, two ships <laughs> passing. <laughs> And, and you moved to the Midwest, so the, the irony is not lost on me. Yes, yes. Well, we're in the middle of Apologetics Month at the moment, and we are today talking about the argument from desire. This was an argument that Lewis uses in a bunch of his books in The Pilgrim's Regress, Surprised by Joy, um, The Weight of Glory, but the real famous one is in Mere Christianity. And it's an argument for the existence of God that I personally really like. Might not be for everyone, but this one speaks very loudly to me. Uh, so would you mind kicking things off by outlining what this argument from desire is? 
Yeah, so you already quoted uh, briefly from Lewis's presentation of it in Mere Christianity. I think that's maybe the most famous and one of the clearest ways of, of presenting it. I'm just going to give you what Lewis says, and then we can talk about it a bit. Uh, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. That's his first major premise. Like The whole argument is going to turn on that argument. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, I, I think maybe a couple things to note is there's a decent amount of rigor in Lewis's argument that he's not really exposing in more of a syllogistic way. Mm-hmm. He's presenting this is mere Christianity. This is coming from a series of radio interviews, you know, radio conversations where it's much more conversational. Yeah. Uh, but if you really unpack the arguments he's making, he's suggesting uh, in all of our experience, we find that, you know, the innate desires that we have, the desires we're born with, the desires that uh, are kind of inescapable, there's a natural correlation between those things and some existing earthly reality. That we don't find a situation where we have a hunger or thirst that is just unquenchable, except in regards for this desire for God. Uh, that we we do still find, you know, I just had Mexican food for lunch. It was excellent. <laughs> and yet I'm still going to be hungry again. And, le- you know, it's, it, in terms of duration, it's not going to totally satisfy me. In terms of, you know, even in the height of it, you're not like, this literally could not be better. Mm-hmm. You might say, I can't have better food. But you, you are not saying, if you have any real degree of self-awareness, you're not saying, this is literally all I need as a person. Mm-hmm. That... People who say that, I think, are maybe not introspective enough or self-aware enough that uh, we're still, even at the best of earthly pleasures, we're wanting something in scope and magnitude as well as in duration that, that we're just not getting. So on the one hand, we have all these natural desires, uh, and we know about natural desires that they always point to something real, and yet we also have this desire that we find in ourselves that is not satisfied by anything earthly, and that really kind of frustrates everything. You can have all the food and drink and everything in the world and still be unhappy at the end of the day. Um, And I think people who've experienced those things know that. There's a fascinating relationship between economics and the suicide rate where the very poor often are not the ones who are committing suicide. If you imagine um, the reason I'm unhappy is because of poverty, (laughs) well, that gives me something to work towards. But if I get a bunch of money and then realize, oh, and that unhappiness didn't go away, I'm still wanting something more, something else, well, now that's very depressing. So I, I think that we can kind of observe C.S. Lewis's observation about desire that we, you know, first, we, obviously, you know, from ducklings on up, <laughs> we see the desire being fulfilled, the, the correlation there, hopefully. But then the existence of this desire um, for something more than what we've experienced, something more than what we have, I think we can see it hopefully in ourselves and certainly in those around us. You know, there's a, a famous interview, Tom Brady, who after winning maybe like his first two or three Super Bowls was interviewed by 60 Minutes and he'd just been named like the world's most eligible bachelor. Something, you know, so he had everything you'd want, fame and physical success and he'd won, like, you couldn't outperform him in the field he was in and every romantic you know there was no one no one had what tom brady had and yet he he said is this all there is 
And the interviewer was taken aback and said, I don't know, is it? Because from <laughs> our perspective, uh, it seems like, well, Tom Brady must have it all. And he's saying, hopefully this isn't all because it's, it's empty. And then you just end up playing the game for like 22 years and then retiring. And, and you know, like it just, there's got to be something more than we find on Earth. And this isn't a rare story either. I think he's it's just not. one of the most obviously honest people about it. If you look through any celebrity mag or you read the more detailed interviews, these do not strike you as people who are really all that happy. They'll very often spend a lot of the interviews talking about all of the pain and the strain that comes with all of these things. Yeah, and it's not just like, oh, it's a hard job, because they could walk away, and so they're still there for, you know, it isn't like, oh, I have to do two more movies because I don't have enough money or I'm contractually, no, it's like, something is driving you to still go looking in these places that haven't made you happy. Mm. And yeah, I mean, without just throwing all of Hollywood under the bus or something, you, you do have <laughs> I'm okay with it. drugs and sex and escapism and everything else, not just in terms of what they're selling to us, but in terms of what they're evincing in their own life that point to something less than contentment. This is not what a happy, satisfied person does. If everything is going well, you don't live the kind of life that the A-list celebrities appear to live. Mm. Now, the argument itself... I've seen it couched as a deductive, inductive, abductive argument. What do you think is the best way of, of putting this forward? It's a really good question. So Lewis's presentation, which I just gave before, it starts at kind of the level of one's own experience and then builds from that, and much more, I think, inductively. Hmm. But I think the way Kraft presents it, um, if, I, if I may, he has a different formulation of it, mm -hmm. that it's the same argument, but... It's a little more syllogistic, maybe a little more deductive, and he's not so much going off of, like, you have this desire. It's more just that this desire exists. Uh, his, his first premise is every natural, innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. That's a, another way of saying Lewis's creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. Born with is, is highlighting natural and innate. Yeah. In other words, like you could imagine, oh, I, I heard about this amazing roller coaster and then it got closed <laughs> down. I really want to go there and that desire can never be satisfied because they closed it. Yeah. Well, that's not an innate or natural desire. It's something elicited, something created, and then it could go away. You mm -hmm. know, like, I wish it's externally had conditioned. The, the lifespan of a Nokia, you know, like whatever, <laughs> like, those kind of things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about natural and innate desires. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a, a lot of places where this argument gets picked at, I think Crave's answer, his, his first premise, really clears up a lot of this stuff, this difference between a natural desire and an artificial one. You know, is it externally conditioned? Is it universal? Is it transient? Would sometimes just go away and stay away forever? I remember hearing Kraft give this, and he said that there's the other thing that you notice is you talk about hunger and thirst, the states of deprivation. And for other things which we might desire, you, there aren't words for that. You know, I might desire the superpowers of Marvel superheroes. They're, they're, right. <laughs> there is no sense of deprivation of that. Because, Disempowered. Yes, exactly. It, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's a reason. Yeah, it's, it's well said. Because we have words like hunger and thirst because it's a recognition that we shouldn't be mm. permanently in a state of deprivation there, that there is some corresponding good uh, that can fulfill that. And, and that's different than, I mean, usually we'd use terms like covetousness to describe, 
oh, I want this thing that I didn't even know about five minutes ago, and now <laughs> I just feel like I'm going to die if I don't have it. Like hmm. Those kind of elicited desires are just not what we're talking about here. Lewis doesn't say one way or the other about whether those desires can be satisfied, and I think obviously it's situationally dependent, and, and it's just not necessary for the argument. So I think that's the first maybe clarification to make because a lot of the arguments against the argument for desire are just inventing elicited desires that this wouldn't be true of, but it's like, well, it already wasn't true of that. You know, if you desire an iPhone and iPhones exist, that's great, but that has nothing to do with Lewis's argument from desire no. because that's not a natural and innate desire either way. Mm. Okay, I interrupted you. So, so that's one. the first of the four premises. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is that there exists in us a desire which nothing in time Nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy. Now, again, like people might disagree with this, but that's one of the reasons why I give like the Tom Brady example and the example, you know, like you look at the people who uh, seem to have access to every earthly resource they could want, including love, including romance, including, you know, like, oh, fill in the blanks. And, and when they say this has not satisfied that desire, I'm still looking for happiness. I'm, I'm not satisfied. I feel like that's a pretty convincing verification of the second premise mm. I, I mean certainly one could say oh i don't experience that but even if that is true like even if hypothetically you are not aware of any desire for god you you should at least be able to say yeah but enough people have told me they yeah. are oh we oh, just read enough books right know? exactly literature tells us that man is searching for something <laughs> and and more than that like if you understand the nature of the will just as the intellect is always pursuing truth the will is always pursuing goodness Unless your intellect and will have just totally stopped, uh, you've stopped thinking about things, you've stopped desiring things, then anyone saying, oh, no, I don't, I don't experience this, I don't think they're telling the truth. And maybe they're not telling the truth to themselves, but, you know, the, we don't act like creatures who are totally content and satisfied and done with the search. We no. act like creatures who are in search. Man's search for meaning is a thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I would suggest that. And that nothing in time, nothing on earth, and no creature has shown the capability to like satisfy that. Mm. So then the, the third ste like step, uh, if you will, or the third premise is that, therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth, and creatures which can satisfy this desire. And that follows naturally. That if every natural innate desire uh, has a corresponding satisfaction and that satisfaction doesn't exist in time on earth or in creatures, well, then it must exist outside of time, outside of earth, and outside of creatures. That something uncreaturely, atemporal or eternal, uh, and and unearthly, must be the the fulfillment of this desire. And then he just says, well, that's what people call God or life with God forever. That what we're searching for there, if you were to put a name on it, is a search for God or to search for heaven. However, you want to describe that thing. That's what we're talking about as Christians. Something supernatural, something beyond this world. Exactly. And, and something that creatures are incapable of fulfilling, but someone other than creatures can. So let's talk about some objections that people might Please. push back on that. So could it just be that we haven't found this thing yet? Could it be that in you know, another thousand years, the quality of life will be so great, we will then truly be happy? I mean, it's impossible to empirically verify or deny. I mean, I guess you could verify it if you just found that thing. <laughs> but it's impossible to deny. It is, it's not falsifiable in the traditional sense. So in that sense... It's a weak objection. Hmm. Uh, moreover, given how much uh, development and everything on a material level has happened, 
I think the question ought to be, well, what more could you be looking for at a creaturely level? Like, you can only design a bed that's so comfortable or <laughs> food that's so flavorful or so large in quantity or, or whatever. You know, like, if those things aren't making you happy, the idea you can just uh, play with the recipe a little bit and get an even better version and now your heart is totally satisfied, I think that's kind of an ignorant objection. Mm. Particularly when you compare the standards of living in a typical Western country today just roll it back just to even a few hundred years and the average person today lives like a king. And and we don't see a corresponding rate of happiness. We no. see things like a, an opioid epidemic. You know, like someone pointed out that opiates are much more readily available in places like China, mm. uh, Afghanistan, India. And yet the places where people are medicating themselves to death with painkillers are the place where people are living like kings. That if what we believed about material happiness worked this would not be the evidence we'd be seeing. Like all of the data we're seeing suggests these things aren't making us happy. And in fact, as we ramp them up, we're becoming less happy rather than more happy. Uh, happiness studies on women in particular show a declining rate of happiness since the 1970s. As women have more access to everything, as rates of education go up, as rates of female employment go up, as abortion has become just de rigueur, it hasn't led to an increase in happiness. It's actually led to a marked statistically significant decline in self-reported happiness. Those things should be sounding alarm bells that I think given all of that, certainly the person who says, well, maybe it's just out there still, mm. we can say all of the evidence points against that, all of the trend lines point against that, and it seems a little fanciful to assume that we're going to just find, oh, well, <laughs> turn out there this you know, innate natural desires baked into all humans was for this thing we couldn't find for thousands of years. Even from an evolutionary perspective, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Okay, so materialism can't solve it. What about, do we just need to be better adjusted humans? Do we need just more psychotherapy? <laughs> so I think there's some truth to that, frankly. Meaning, if you have a, a disordered relationship to food, drink, sex, and the like, you are less happy. This is just natural virtue ethics, right? Like there's a reason uh, concupiscence really does have this disordering effect and that virtue, having moderation and temperance, having fortitude to withstand difficulties, it does make you happier. But a self-aware virtuous person will still say that's not enough. Mm -hmm. Like those cardinal virtues are a floor, but they're not a ceiling. If that's where you stop, you want something more. And, and ironically, the person who really is living the life of prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice is maybe more aware of there needing to be something more than that. And I think we see that from the great pagans, people like Aristotle, hmm. uh, that they have this hunger, or Socrates for that matter. Uh, the gods of the Greeks are incapable of satisfying what my heart is asking for. I'm wanting something more than earthly reality, more even than the pantheon. And he, he ends up rejecting. I mean, he, he is condemned as an atheist because he says, <laughs> these gods are not. And, and what he really is doing is affirming a theism beyond what ordinary people could grasp. A, a theism that there's one God beyond all of these categories of being that could actually satisfy this. And, and nothing short of that is going to. Hmm. Another objection I've seen to this argument, it basically says that this argument is begging the question, is very clearly baking in to its premises that we're talking about God here. This is what we all secretly need. <laughs> yeah, I think probably what you're doing here is just recognizing a sort of uh, conversational or argumentative shorthand. 
Meaning, uh, with a full-length treatise just on this, you could go through every other possible alternative. And, I mean, we've, we've just looked at a couple. You know, could it be something else earthly? Could it be just better self-regulation? Neither of those things seem like they could be doing it. We could continue down that list. And what we would be left with uh, would seemingly be what we call God. The other thing you can do is, is use Kreeft's. Like, Kreeft is a little more explicit in, well, nothing we've found in time, nothing on Earth, nothing creaturely. Well, once you accept the negation of those things, it's not clear what you'd be left with other than God. Mm. Uh, like, what else is fitting the criteria of being eternal or atemporal, uh, immaterial or not earthly, uh, and then not creaturely. Uh, you end up with God or something so similar to God <laughs> that we might just call it God. Yeah. Now, what do you do when somebody hears this argument and they make the claim that you mentioned earlier? It's like, I just don't feel this. I don't feel this desire. This is not a universal desire. Ego, by your own argument, no, doesn't doesn't apply. Yeah, so we're dealing with natural and innate desires, and it's possible even on the level of hunger and thirst. You know, if you're a person who eats constantly, you may never experience hunger. You've never, like, given your body time to experience hunger, say. Uh, or if you're a person with a, an extremely low libido, you may not have much of a sexual desire. It doesn't follow from that that these are not natural and innate desires. Uh, in the same way that we would say... Humans are bipeds, but some people may be born with one leg. Okay, that do, it's not actually a negation of, of the overall proposition. So that would be the first thing. Like, I am skeptical of the person who says they don't have the desire to see God, mm. but I think it's enough to say, even if that were true, that's not a defeater. That's not, all that shows is you're not aware of, or maybe even don't experience this natural and innate desire that other humans do. The argument still holds, because if God exists, <laughs> Because, and we can know that from some people's natural and innate desires. Unless you say no one has a natural and innate desire for God, uh, which is a much different sentence than I don't. Yeah. And you can't really get from I don't to everyone doesn't or no one does. You know, uh, it, The defeater would have to be no one actually has a desire to see God. And that's self-evidently untrue. Mm. There's a whole field of neurology that looks at religious experiences and brain chemistry and everything else, and it triggers these parts of the brain that nothing else triggers. Okay, like this is pointing to actual hardwiring. This is pointing to something at a bodily neurological level baked in, not something created through you know external influence or culture or, or the like. Uh, so I think given all of that, the argument stands even, even with that objection. The other thing is I suspect the person who doesn't feel that or says they don't feel that is just self-unaware, or they're perpetually distracted. Meaning, if you put away the distractions for a few days and just said, I'm going to do a weekend with no electronics. I'm going <laughs> to do a weekend with no artificial stimulants of any kind, whether it's electronics or caffeine or alcohol, or nothing that's going to like alter my state, and I'm just going to be a human for a weekend, I suspect <laughs> you'll unearth a whole lot of desires and feelings and things that you just hadn't paid attention to because you were too distracted. In the same way that, like, you know, you'll hear stories about gamers playing all night and forgetting to sleep or playing all day and forgetting to eat and drink and, you know, all those things. Like, it's possible to be so unaware of yourself because you're so lost in something else that I would suggest that's more likely the scenario, just empirically, 
then that you're like the one odd person without this natural and innate desire. Mm. I think that idea of distraction is really important and becoming more important every day as we become more and more connected and have more and more devices beeping at us and infinite scroll feeds that we can just keep going down. Oh, what were you saying? I was looking at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I thought of was also the idea of transference. You know, psychologists will talk about this idea yeah. of you're actually trying to nurture one desire which isn't being fulfilled by transferring it to a different kind of object. And I think, yeah, that's probably another uh, another place you see that really obviously. People will take food and drink or sex or romance or, or fill in the blank and use it to try to fill that God-shaped hole, to, you know, for lack of a better term. And you can see that, I think, in things like quantity. You know, uh, this is obviously true in the case of addiction, that you've taken something that, if it should be used, should be used in moderation, and you used it in a way that wasn't respectful of those boundaries. Well, why? Why did you do that? Because you were trying to do something with it mm. that it wasn't made to do. And... And as a result, like you end up hurting yourself very greatly. You know, those kind of things happen. All of that's pointing to the fact that like, oh, there's an underlying unhappiness here that you're you're medicating. And you might be medicating in an obvious way with drink and drugs. You might be medicating in, in a less obvious way like work or romance or, or fill in the blank. But it's it's that same thing where the underlying need isn't getting met. And so you just, you know you have a rough breakup and rather than dealing with that emotional pain, you just spend a lot of time working. That same thing happens if you're like, I'm hungry for God. I'm not finding him. So I'm going to spend a whole lot of time focusing on X, Y, or C instead. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think ultimately if you meet somebody that says that they just don't feel this desire, this argument can only just invite them to reexamine themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it can't compel. It can only appeal to them mm -hmm. to consider the possibility that there actually is this desire. It's not something that you can strong arm somebody into. And well, yeah, actually, let me, let me, if I may, let me point something out with that. Because I think there's two, two ways the argument works. One is, oh, I don't feel that desire myself or I'm not aware of that desire. But the fact that other people have it means logically it's more likely than not that God exists. <laughs> That's one level. And I think you can get a sort of intellectual case for God in a certain way there. Mm. But I think that even Crave would recognize that the argument is stronger in as much as a person says, aha, I see in myself this desire for God, and I see that nothing short of God has ever been able to satisfy that desire. And unless we live in a very curious world that just has this one unmet natural innate desire, then the most likely answer, the most obvious conclusion I should draw from that is that there is a God who wants to satisfy the longings of my heart. That's a much stronger version. Mm. You can intellectually affirm the existence of God in the other one, but I don't think it has the same compelling force in terms of being attractive, in terms of inviting one in. Yeah, it's kind of like the moral argument. When you try and internalize it, y you find your own nature is, is just shouting and screaming at you that this is true. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And just suppose you are that odd duck, because... Even Lewis said of himself, and this is one of the greatest children's authors of all time, he said, I, I don't particularly like children, but I just assume that's my problem, not theirs. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why I point out the biped thing. You know, there are these aberrations. You know, maybe that's too strong. Maybe that sounds like a very judgmental word. I don't mean it that way. I just mean like there are variations on the human theme, on the human norm. So it's not outside the realm of possibility intellectually that you would find someone 
who has a, a muted or even seemingly non-existent desire for God, apart from all the external stuff we've, we've kind of mentioned, the, the constant culture of distraction and mm-hmm. uh, shallowness and, and, and the rest. But yeah, a, a person, um, it may be that asking that person to also be self-aware is too much, but I think a person with a little bit of self-awareness there can say, yeah, this is, this is a me problem. This is something that's uh, defective in the way I think about things, or, or maybe this is just a limitation in terms of my natural affections or, or whatever that is. But the fact that everyone around me says puppies are cute and babies are adorable <laughs> and there's a natural desire to see God should be enough for me to take those things on faith, so to speak. Mm. And maybe perhaps even reconsider what we mean by desire. Your colleague, Trent, he often talks about how he doesn't so much have warm fuzzies when he mm-hmm. thinks about God, but the intellectual exploration mm-hmm. of the divine you know, kind of gets him going. You know, there, there's, there's something that attracts him in that, even if it's not the same as the desire that he might have for Tucker. Yeah, it's well put, because I think we often think about desire just in, in the realm of the passions more. Like the, yeah, exactly. Like the desire you feel for food, drink, sex, those are the things that we normally think of when we think about desire. And uh, maybe it's a limitation with the language that, um, and, and instead, desire is what gets the will going. Yeah. So the person who desires to run a marathon <laughs> almost certainly does not feel about it the same way I feel about having like a large taco. <laughs> and, <laughs> If they do, we are just different species. <laughs> but, you know, like, in all seriousness, it, desire is that which moves the will. And so ideally, the passions are also rejoicing in that. But if you're desiring to do something in the sense of willing to do it, that's still desire, mm-hmm. even if your passions aren't rejoicing in all of that. We're both fathers. We've both got up in the middle of the night to look after a crying child. Quite so. <laughs> Don't really want to do that. Want to stay asleep. Yeah. Um, bartering with a two-year-old. You know, <laughs> what do I have to offer you to go back to bed? You know, but in all seriousness, there is that uh, we can talk about desire in those contexts. You know, the desire to do the difficult thing that needs to be done is still a, an area of desire. It's not that you just want that thing as such because it's just so enjoyable to get up in the middle of the night or, or mm-hmm. fill in the blank. So yeah, I, I think we need to have a, a more nuanced, maybe more adult understanding of what desire is and, and uh, move beyond the obvious kind of concupiscible uh, understandings of desire. Hmm. Now, we mentioned Trent earlier. One of his objections to this argument is he says that there's pretty much a universal desire among everybody to be able to change the past, but that's not possible to do. So is that a defeater? No, I think that's a really interesting argument. Um, I think for a few reasons it's not a defeater. First of all, I don't think we'd say it's not natural and innate in a certain sense. Uh, it's probably brought on by very specific events. <laughs> you uh, you do something really shameful or really embarrassing or, uh, you know, a friend of mine told me to invest in Bitcoin in 2010 and I meant to do it and never got around to it <laughs> those things you know like you, you look back at these very kind of specific occurrences where it does seem to be elicited in a way that's not really true in the same way for god it isn't like well i didn't want god but then you know someone mentioned god on tv and now i do that the experience there i think is is a bit different second i i think in terms of what it is you're wanting in the desire to change the past 
is to have like uh, an embarrassing thing forgotten or mm-hmm. to be able to do the right thing. In other words, like there's a higher order thing. It's not so much about changing the past. It's the good that you want exactly. if you could change it. And there's something higher order that you're pointing to with the desire to change the past such that if, if you found you could get that without changing the past, you, you might actually... So for instance, you have a, a horrible lapse of judgment and really damage a friendship. And one part of you wants to go back and undo that to repair the friendship. But if you were to discover, like, actually the friendship will be even stronger through reconciliation and and forgiveness and everything else, then you could look back on that and say, yeah, although it would be nice in one sense, I'm actually happier, you know, oh, happy fault. Mm -hmm. So I think there is that. There is Because part of what's going on here is that man desires good and hates evil. And so when you realize the evil you've done in the past, your abhorrence of evil, and I mean evil both in the moral sense and even in the natural sense of I made a fool of myself, or it's not a moral fault, yeah. but like it's still a natural evil um, that you want to go back and pursue past goods and avoid past evils. And so you, it's like watching on Monday morning, like, oh, the chief should have done this and not that, and they could have beaten the other, you know, like that, that sort of thing. You're Monday morning quarterback in your own life. <laughs> it's it's born out of a desire for success, of a desire to avoid failure, but, but rooted even more deeply, the desire for the good, the, de- the desire to avoid evil. As a Christian, we would say, that desire is what's really going on here. Mm. And that desire, although in a, a, an accidental sense, may look like a desire to just fix the past, it's really going for something bigger than that. And if you could go back and change the past, you would still find yourself... Not, like, I mean, imagine if you just had a time machine could continually go back and undo every mistake you ever made and you get A's on all of your tests <laughs> and you, you know, you're still not happy at the end of that process. Mm. Uh, there's still something more that you're wanting. And in that sense, like the, that desire hasn't been met because the ultimate desire there is to avoid evils and to pursue good. And that hasn't been met in, in, in a real substantial kind of way. So I know that was a, kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I think it's a, the, the time machine desire is an elicited desire for something that is more naturally met in the beatific vision. Mm -hmm. You heard it here, folks. Trent Horn is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But your point about the beatific vision puts me in mind of one last thing I wanted to mention in relation to this argument, and that's the transcendentals. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Mm -hmm. We experience them in this world, and we recognize them as truly wonderful, but we are never satisfied with the amount that we have. We're not satisfied with just a little bit of truth, a little bit of beauty, or a little bit of goodness. We want them more. We want them maximally. We want them infinitely. Yes, uh, very true. And this is something that the people who have the most, I think, proximity to that know, if that makes sense. In other words, it, like just as I gave the example before of Tom Brady, of someone who is really in a position to speak to the limitations of worldly happiness because just about every realm of happiness that you could imagine he's achieved mm. and, and has still not been happy. We could also talk about this in terms of beauty from the perspective of somebody like Edgar Allan Poe. And in The Poetic Principle, he writes that there is an immortal instinct deep within the spirit of man. And he says, it's plainly a sense of the beautiful. And he says, we have still a thirst unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication 
of man's perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above. Inspired by an ecstatic prescience of the glories beyond the grave, we struggled by multiform combinations among the things and thoughts of time to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements, perhaps, appertain to eternity alone. <laughs> now, that is very much Lewis's argument from desire, but Poe is looking at it in the realm specifically of beauty. Mm. That his job as an artist, as a writer, is just to get a little bit of eternal beauty here and now. But like the moth who desires the star, like you, you can play around with porch lamps for a while, <laughs> but that's not what you're after. You're after something so incredibly beyond you, so much more glorious, that the porch lamps are ultimately a distraction as much as a reminder. Hmm. And I mean, really, all of this could just be summed up in the words of Augustine. You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until they rest in you. Exactly. Oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. You know, it, it is that desire that he's describing. That in all of his sin, even, he's, he's looking outside for a God who he should have been aware was, was working upon him within. Hmm. Well, we have a little bit of time left. And since it's Apologetics Month, and since we are currently recording in the studios of Catholic Answers, we should mention something about Lewis and Catholicism and about some of his objections and how you might have responded to him if he had called up during Catholic Answers Live. <laughs> because Lewis, he was uncomfortable with Marian devotion, the authority of the Pope, and particularly the idea of what the Catholic Church might teach. In his biography, George Sayer writes about Lewis and a conversation that he had with his doctor, Dr. Havard, who basically said, hey, all of your friends are Catholic. Aren't you at least a little bit tempted? And Lewis deflected a little bit. But he pointed to two things, two reasons why he couldn't become Catholic. He said the position that you give to the Virgin Mary and the doctrine of papal infallibility. And in the book, it then says, but he refused to discuss them. And this is a little bit of the problem with talking about Lewis and particular denominations, and particularly the Catholic Church. He, by and large, didn't want to talk about it. He was from Northern Ireland, and that <laughs> didn't always go well, those conversations. No. Uh, there is one other thing that I wanted to read before I hand this over, because he writes in Christian Reunion. He says, the real reason why I cannot be in communion with you is not my disagreement with this or that Roman doctrine, but that to accept your church means not to accept a given body of doctrine, but to accept in advance any doctrine your church hereafter produces. It is like being asked to agree not only with what a man has said, but with what he's going to say. To us, the terrible thing about Rome is the recklessness, as we hold, with which he is added to the deposit of faith. You see in Protestantism the faith dying out in a desert. We see in Rome the faith smothered in a jungle. I know no way of bridging this gulf. Yeah, I, I think it's probably worth uh, granting one part of what he's saying, that there is a sense in which papal infallibility is like being asked to agree not only to what a man has said, but what he's going to say. And there's one man with whom all Christians would say we ought to do this. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis does a fantastic job of pointing that out. You think about the famous so-called trilemma, you know, Lord, liar, lunatic. Uh, Lewis's point is that the one foolish thing that people often say about Jesus is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. In other words, to say, oh, I agree with these teachings of Jesus, but then he says something else that maybe I might disagree with, so I'm not going to follow him because I don't know what he's going to say tomorrow. Well, that's just the wrong way. I don't care what your 
prior commitments would have you say about Jesus's moral teachings. Like Jesus's moral teachings, their authority flows from who he is, not that he mostly happened to get things right about human nature. No, no, no. Like he's not just making observations and then we we guess, like, I think these ones are probably true. (laughs) Yeah, that's just the wrong way to look at Jesus and just the wrong way to look at the church. The church says not, uh, we've been around a long time and we've been thinking about this a lot and these are our best guesses, but Jesus said, I will build my church and he actually did. So there's a question of identity in both cases. The whole point of the Lord Liar Lunatic thing is not what do you think of his teachings, but who is he? The whole point of the question of the church is not do you agree with the church's position on X, Y, or Z doctrine, but who is the church? Is the church just a collection of Christians that are doing their best, or is the church the body of Christ? Because if the church is the body of Christ, and if Christ has promised that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will come and lead the church into all truth, then I don't have to worry about the fact that my priors might be challenged by some hard teaching Jesus says or, or some church teaching that I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. That's just a, a reminder of why I need a church in the first place, why I need a Savior in the first place, that I wouldn't be able to get very far, very reliably by my own lights. So to that end, I would actually give you another uh, Lewis quote. Uh, he wrote this to H. Lyman Stebbins. He said, if there were an ancient Platonic society still existing at Athens and claiming to be the exclusive trustees of Plato's meaning, I should approach them with great respect. But if I found that their teaching was in many ways curiously unlike his actual text and unlike what ancient interpreters said, and in some cases cannot be traced back to within a thousand years of his time, I should reject their exclusive claims, while ready, of course, to take any particular thing they taught on its merits. The, The point there is that He's assuming that the church works like a, an ancient Platonic society of just like <laughs> people who really like a thinker and are ready to like share that great moral teacher. But that's exactly the thing he says is wrong about how to approach Jesus. Mm. Like what he's doing to the church, treating it as a Platonic society, is an identical error to the mistake of those people who treat Jesus like Plato and just say, well, I agree with these teachings and not those ones. They wouldn't be the exclusive trustees of Plato's teaching in such a situation. Like the people in Athens who were just big Plato devotees don't have some sort of exclusive claim to be as interpreters, barring some special reason why they should. They may have thought more about it and longer about it, but that doesn't give us any any indication reliably that they're going to be the best. Someone else may come along and say, oh, you've misread this. And and in fact, he, he seems to posit it. So they wouldn't be the exclusive trustees. They would just simply be arrogating a title to themselves they didn't deserve. If that's what the church is, then sure. The church has no more claim than any other group of Christians anywhere else who've been thinking about the problem for a long time. But that's begging his conclusion, because the whole point is that the church isn't an ancient Platonic society. It isn't just an ancient society of Jesus' followers. It's actually the body of Christ, which is something bigger and more than that. Hmm. And it is, according to Scripture, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Exactly. And, and he gives this kind of binding and loosening authority to the church. Mm. That if all of those things are true, and then the church says, this thing about Mary is true, that I may not have gotten to on my own, that may just be an indication that I don't know that much. <laughs> that, you know, it does seem like the, uh, the natural conclusion is to say, if the church says Scripture means this, and I think it means that, the odds just on a probabilistic level, even if you ignore the Holy Spirit part and just say, well, there's a billion of them. They've been around for 2,000 years. There's one of me I've been around for 30-some-odd years. (laughs) They're probably right about 
this, like just mathematically. <laughs> That's just like the, you know, this, uh, I, I'm constantly struck by something Martin Luther said towards the end of his life, where he was looking back and said that in the early days of the Reformation, he'd had this pang asking, are you alone wise? And he thought it was a temptation, but that's actually what conscience sounds like. A little bit of humility to say, really, everyone before you got Christianity wrong until you? What are the odds of that? And the answer is minuscule, <laughs> non-existent even. That if Christianity is successfully revealed, it's not something that takes 1,500 years and some random German monk to unpack. It's something that Christians can know everywhere. These things were not done in a corner. Christianity is a public, revealed religion. So given all of that, anytime I find myself disagreeing with the church, I'm in that position of am I alone wise? That, that properly uh, should be a call to humility and a call to respect who the church is. Again, on those almost like Burkean grounds of like her antiquity and her size, but at an even more theological level, by the fact that the Holy Spirit is promised to the church in a way the Holy Spirit isn't promised to give me individual answers. Mm. Now, we come to our wrap-up time, and actually a very easy transition, because you've said that it's all about the identity of the church. That's what matters. Have you perhaps written any books that might <laughs> oh, yes. answer the other side of that question, that perhaps it is the Catholic Church? Yeah, so actually the uh, conversation we were just having about Lewis... I have that for a few pages, I think pages 19 and 20 in Pope Peter, which is one of the books I've written, which is looking at uh, the role of the papacy in trying to address that I have to do a little bit about who the church is. I've also just released a book called uh, The Early Church Was the Catholic Church, in which I argue that the early church was the Catholic church. And uh, actually also on the question of identity, one other book that I wrote called Who Am I, Lord? Finding Your Identity in Christ looks at those identity questions, not in that corporate ecclesial way, but what does the identity of Christ mean about individual identity? Joseph Heschmer, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks again to Joe for coming on the show. And thanks to all of our listeners and Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Anonymous, Bill, Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. Please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, MySpace. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>